And now, for your listening pleasure, here's Polizzi and Rose, PNR with This Old Marketing. Take it away, boys. Well, hello, content marketers. I'm Robert Rose, and welcome to episode number 32 of PNR's This Old Marketing, recorded on Monday, June 23rd, 2014, the first official week of summer. And why don't you kick it off with a review of our little show? Bounce on over to iTunes while the kids are at the mall and let us know how much the show means to you. Come on, you know you want to do it. And here's something else. We publish on Tuesdays, and the blog post doesn't go live till Saturday. So if you want all your content marketing news goodness a few days early, we hope you'll consider subscribing via iTunes or Stitcher. That means by the time Saturday rolls around, you know more than your average bear about what's going on in content marketing. But of course, you can always stop by thisoldmarketing.com where you'll also find all the show notes and the great stuff we talk about here. Anyway, and also as always, please welcome my good, good friend coming from Cleveland, Ohio. Please welcome the summer day of content marketing, Mr. Joe Polizzi. Happy beginning of summer to you, my friend. (laughs) Thank you, sir. It is, you know, it's funny. You mentioned two things. First of all, hard to believe this is number 32. I where, know, isn't it amazing? Did, it feels like we just started this thing. And second thing, and do do kids still go to the mall? Is that is... uh, they do? They do. I th- this is what I've heard. This uh, I you know I don't have any kids, but I but I hear they uh, they go to the mall now. They skateboard at the mall if you're boys, and they go to the mall and uh, and I mean I, who am I, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do? Yeah, what, what do you know? <laughs> I don't know. My kids aren't going to the mall, so I I don't you know. That's what I used to do. We always just hang around at the mall and just see if, yeah, see if, and you know, we were a bunch of geeks and just sat at the water fountain and was just hoping a girl would look our way, which they never did. But you know, how about Spencer's Gifts? Did you go to oh, Spencer's Gifts? Which is like yeah. what Spencer and the Spencer Gifts is still around, but what's what like Hot Topic seems to still be the. The kids still go to. I have no. I have. I have no idea that. Uh, I, I have no idea what that even means. But <laughs> I always. We always. We always went to Spencer Gifts, and then when we were young, we would sneak to the adult row, right, where you could see all the all, all the like, uh, you know, the, the 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 crazy topless girls and stuff like that. It was oh, what am I talking about here? Man, rant already. I know. <laughs> it's, it, we're we're actually showing our age, or you are. Yes, I guess. we are. I don't know. I, I at least know what a hot yeah. topic is. I love he stamps stock in hot topic, believe it or not, until oh, I stopped understanding right. what they sold and I said, Well that's not good. So, <laughs> exactly. Go. That's the end for that. <laughs> All right. Well shall we to the news then? Let's do it. <laughs> okay. Well, uh first news item up is uh about our friends at LinkedIn. Um, interestingly enough, and it looks like they're putting their content scoring uh, or content marketing scoring mechanism to good use. They have a new article in Media Post this week talks about the fact that Forbes, the World Economic Forum, and Inc. Magazine are the three top 10 most influential brands on LinkedIn, according to LinkedIn, of course. Um, this uh, Their ranking, I guess, that now is derived from this new content marketing score created by them. And it quote unquote, measures the effectiveness of a company's content marketing efforts through their activity on the social network. So what do you think? Is this, uh, is this more noise? I mean, I thought, weren't you in this business at one point assigning scores to publishers about content marketing? Uh, no, we, we did, we did a little bit of scoring a while ago until I realized that it, it actually makes no money at all. But <laughs> it actually, it's, it's good content marketing if you're in that yeah, business. There you go. So all it's right. very good. No, it's, it's interesting. Looking at what five of the top ten are publishers, and the yeah, other five are exactly. brands like uh, let's say it says Microsoft, HP, IBM, Salesforce. I, I guess my my whole take with this thing is, in a few years, do you not think that most of these, more of these, will be brands? I mean, it, it's it almost should shouldn't it be that the that the top ten should be publishers? I guess. I mean, you know, I you know, so it's. Obviously, they're not. We are not privy to the content marketing score algorithm and how they're scoring things. And I mean, it strikes me as sort of the the clout idea, where the more noisy you are, the the more and higher you score. And I know that's not exactly right, but it's 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 kind of that simple, right? You're just really noisy, you get a higher score. And it strikes me that publishers are certainly going to be more noisy um, and publish a lot more than than other brands. Um, and that there's a, I guess, um, well, I guess I'll put it this way. It going back to your, uh, you know, the, the thing that you constantly say, which is, you know, 
brands becoming publishers and sort of buying some sort of I mean this makes a great case for that right so if the, if we believe the score then brands becoming like Inc or like Forbes or you know like uh, uh, you know the Wall Street Journal makes a heck of a lot of sense because it, it apparently it increases your score consistent publishing over a you know over a long period of time around the relevant needs of your audience I mean that that will win out every day. Yeah, and uh, of course you're, you know, and on, and this is on LinkedIn because BuzzFeed didn't make the cut, right? And we know why right. because all of BuzzFeed's content is being shared on Facebook because you and That's I right. see it every day, and it's just overwhelming the amount of BuzzFeed or Vice content or that you don't see. I don't see a lot of Wall Street Journal content being shared on on Facebook. I see it on LinkedIn. Different audience altogether. But I guess the what's the learning for for brands? I I would well, say I the, guess yeah. I mean yeah, the, the the the, the what ta- I mean, what I was trying to say very inarticulately was the the idea of, you know, it doesn't surprise me that if you're looking at influence and maybe part of their algorithm is the, you know, the measurement of subscriptions to that particular brand. It doesn't surprise me that the initial foray into this is going to be people subscribing to Forbes, Inc., Wall Street Journal, you know, the, the sort of what you would normally expect subscribers to subscribe to. And so if there is learning for me here, it's as brands are trying to become more influential on a network like LinkedIn, having a content brand is something where, you know, uh, where it seems to make a lot of sense because people are not going to subscribe to Microsoft for business news, but they might subscribe to a content brand created by Microsoft for business news, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. And the other thing that just hit me is how email subscription is so critical here, right? Because generally what happens in social sharing, people think that, oh yeah, you know, you just create a piece of content, somebody's going to find it and then they're going to share it. Well, most of the sharing, and I can say this firsthand for what we see on Content Marketing Institute's site, most of our sharing happens once the email goes out to subscribers. Right. So of course, most of these people are subscribed to like the Forbes Daily or Inc. Magazine's daily updates or whatever. And then they say, oh, I like that article. Then they go and share that on LinkedIn or Twitter or whatever the case is. So I think if I'm going to take, if I'm a brand looking at this, besides the fact that, yeah, I can create a content brand if I'm a Microsoft, what I really want to create is I want to create a subscriber because I know that if I want social sharing and I want to be an influencer, I really need to have a, a subscriber that's anticipating that content and will then make it shareable, make it easy for them to share that content. I think that's I think that's exactly it. You know, I mean, I, it, this is top of mind for me because I find myself today sitting in, you know, Zwolle, Holland um, at a conference where owned media and the idea of building an audience and owned media, you know, the owned media platform is really top of mind for the, the conference here. And this is really the, you know, as I've been researching where I am today and as I've been sort of focused on the last couple of weeks with client work that we've been doing, this seems to be a a, a, a trending thing, which is how do, how do brands really start to transition into an owned media platform that itself is branded and that itself is building an audience? Um, because that seems to be you know, more than the corporate blog, more than the email newsletter where, you know, where there's, where we, where brands we're seeing, you know, have success or having success. Well, the one thing about that before we get to the next news item, and this is where we see brands fall down all the time. They focus so much on the content team and content development. Right. And they fall down on audience development. Where right. how are we? Yeah, how are we going to connect with that audience? Get that subscriber in, move that subscriber along to other content offerings, and I think that if you're going to put that much effort on the content side, you better put. I don't know. I dare I say even more effort on the audience acquisition and retention side, because without that, none of this and all this score stuff that we're talking about is even possible. Well, and it doesn't matter quite. Frankly. It doesn't matter. You, don't, you, know, right. Right. you know, if if you have, you know, if you have an, you know, it doesn't matter what your score is somewhere if you don't have the audience to back it up. You know what I mean? Well, I think that we need to say too, and we have good friends at LinkedIn. But why are they doing this whole score thing? Because what they're showing, and one of the paragraphs say here that it's the combination of original created content along with paying to promote that content on their platform. So let's not let's not go yeah, they're saying it's a combination of the two. Now the one thing and I learned this, you know, 
over the last year, but I'd never realized that the majority of the money that's going into the content recommendation engines like your Outbrains, your Taboola's, your Enrelates, are it's actually being bought by publishers, not by marketers that's right. at this point. That's exactly right. Because that's they know exactly if they right. can go and get the, and they'll buy, shoot, they want audience everywhere. So they're basically going to say, oh, I, you know, go check out my article over here because they can spend less money from a recommendation engine than they can on Google, let's say to get that traffic. That's exactly right. And I can't remember which platform it is, and I won't try and remember just uh, live here, but one of the native advertising platforms uh, that's also itself a content promotion engine is marketing themselves as that, where they where they really see themselves as working across a network of sister sites, right? You know, So a family of publisher sites where they're actually doing more cross-promoting of uh, of each other's content rather than sort of trying to make an advertising type of play. I mean, they do that too, but they're really focusing on you know the large like a Condé Nast type of you know uh, of network where you can do a lot of cross promoting across sister sites rather than uh, than than trying to uh, buy advertising elsewhere. You said native advertising awfully early in this program, yeah, well, and we, yeah, we need to yeah. at least acknowledge that fact. So congratulations <laughs> inside the ten minute mark. I think Good. I think I I think I won last week too. I don't you, know. You you win almost regardless <laughs> you win every week. Oh, you're very oh, sweet. Bad. You're very sweet. All right, let's move along. Um the next story is a fascinating one. Um I've been following it all week as as it has kind of developed um and totally wanted to get your take on this. So, uh on hat tip by the way to uh Nanad Scenic who 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 sent us this link originally. Um, but it was hard to miss if you, you know, if, if you were watching anything online. Uh, IKEA, uh, the lovely furniture company, um, is in a tiff uh, with one of their fan sites and sent them a cease and desist because the fan site uh, launched an advertising uh, business model where IKEA Hacks, uh, the fan site, was a free site for a long time. It got to a point where the person who ran it, uh, who I think is out of Malaysia, actually, um, decided to put advertising on the website. And that apparently was sort of the tipping point for IKEA. So they get they send off the cease and desist letter and commence with the sticks and mob mentality of IKEA is the worst company that's ever lived and blog posts galore and the Twitter campaigns and blah, blah, blah. What did you think about this? Well, I, I want to get your take on it because I think you have a different take than I do, but it it it's almost like ikea is running their business from 20 years ago with that type of a model and not understand i'm almost i'm trying to make what if google let's say went and wanted to shut down all the google all the sites that talk about how to hack google or how to they they would never do that because they get a ton of their traffic from those types of sites it's almost like going to mashable google going to mashable and saying you know stop talking about us in this way because we don't like it. Um, I know there's more to it because the site is called Ikea Hackers, so it's a little bit differently, but different on that. But I, I just think that if you work with your fans, if you try to figure out, I mean, did they not do an analysis and realize, because the article goes on and says a lot of Ikea shopping occurs from people going to this site first, right? Does that not make... I mean, are we missing something here where even if even if it's not always positive, a fan site is something that we should figure out how do we work with them more to to build them up as real you know lovers and fans and, and build more fans from other sites and not just ours? Am I missing something or what, what did not, you take from you, it? You're not you're not missing something. I, here's what I here, here's my take. And, and, and you may have heard it in my voice as I sort of introduced the story. I guess my my challenge here and I don't have a I you know, I agree 100 percent that there may or may not have been different ways for Ikea to approach this, all of which include everything you just said, um, you know, f- figuring out the analysis of what they were actually getting out of the deal, what they should have done, the way that they should have approached it. I guess here's what I'll say. Um, and th- this has been so- – I've been thinking about this for the last week and, and have literally have a draft blog post on this and then didn't write it because I just didn't feel like it would be useful um, but I'll say it here, um, which is, look, you have you have you are required by law to protect your brand. If you don't, you it can be found that you aren't protecting it, and it's no longer under protection. 
That's the whole point of cease and desist letters is that you are required. And the reason I know this is because I have a couple of trademarks where my trademark attorney has said, if you see anything out there that even resembles something that you is under trademark, you have to send them a cease and desist. Otherwise, if they go for a certain amount of time without a cease and desist, they can claim that you're not protecting the brand and they can actually take it it from you. Mm -hmm. So that said, was there a better way for them to communicate with Ikea hackers other than immediately defaulting to a cease and desist? Probably probably a different way of handling it. But I guess the question is, is that some of the, the sort of protest quote unquote that I've seen from, you know, all across Facebook and on Twitter and on these blog posts where they're saying they, 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 there's an, there's an inherent assumption in there that somehow Ikea owed Ikea hackers something, right? That, 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 that there's that, that, you know, because they did so much quote unquote work for the brand, that they owed the company something. And that, I guess, I fundamentally disagree with. If IKEA hackers decided at some point that they got enough traffic, that they were going to make a business out of this, this is, you know, the idea is fine, great. Then either live with the consequences of that or B, figure out a way, as they have, to to, to work it out. I'm just not sure I, I find IKEA so in the wrong here. You know, I, is that, you know, I, I guess... You know, where's the line to be drawn? You know, what if IkeaHackers.com had done something really untoward, like had had advertisements for things, you know, I mean, unspeakable things, right? What if they decided to go down that route? What now would we be as mad? You know, if they had done like, you know, really horrible things? There's a really interesting line here where we need to think about where it needs to be drawn because from a legal standpoint, Ikea was kind of backed into a corner on this. Now again, I want to be really clear. I, I think the what they've what they what they ended up doing was kind of boneheaded and basically ham fisted. They they should have really gone, you know, and and tried to work this out behind the scenes to avoid the PR disaster. I think that's that's the point right there. Yeah. That that so if if we you know, if a brand gets into trouble like this, the the last thing you would want to do is just send out the cease and desist. And just let the legal channels work itself. You, they could have reached out first and said, "Exactly." Hey. They could have just sent an email and said, "Hey, listen, could you not have the advertising on here? Um, you know, because that gets their lawyers riled up." And you know what? We don't know that they didn't do that, but but I'm assuming they didn't because it, the 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 person who owns the website didn't say that they did that. So from that perspective, yes, ham fisted in a in a bad way. But I'm just not sure that it's, you know, I mean, some of the, I mean, it, it's, it goes back to something we talked about many episodes ago, which is this whole sort of pitchforks and mob mentality that we have when a brand does something, you know, that's not, you know, that's seemingly a bully. And, you know, like I, Corey Doctorow on Boing Boing called it censorship. And I'm like, okay, come on, man. That's, it's not censorship. Yeah. It's just, you know, they, they, they made a mistake and now they're, they're, now they're fixing it. It's like, you know, we're all trying to figure this out together, including Ikea. Well, I like the the one of the comments, which is almost exactly like what you're talking about, basically, because all the comments to this article were like, you know, Ikea sucks and like really, right. really bad. Exactly. Like, why would they do that? And and Kelsey Campbell here, which I think is a really uh, interesting comment, says exactly what you did. It's like, hey, look, Ikea has to do this. Maybe they could have done it a little bit of a, in a different way. And possibly there's an opportunity for them to Ikea to buy the site or advertise on the site right. or do a sponsored content play featured Ikea hacks and with their newest products. And that wouldn't, what a great opportunity that would be. And I could have reached out and, and got some concessions that way instead of doing the full, you have to take your site down now. Exactly. And I, and I, and I think, right. And that, but, but the other, the, the flip side of that, is and I'm glad I, I'm glad that I'm glad I'm not the only one. But um, you and you and Kelsey, I think, yeah, are the exactly. only. One. <laughs> I think we may be. Um, but the interesting thing is, is that is that what precedent does that set? Right. So if this didn't happen, if the big thing didn't happen, the big showdown didn't happen, what kind of precedent does this set for others that may want to, you know, you know? And I know it's not a slippery slope and blah blah blah. But but it, they they need to sort of establish the walls of the sandbox, right? So that I can't go out. Ooh. You mean if I go out and set up a IKEA, you know, IKEA love hacking IKEAfurniture.com and I go throw some advertising on it because now they owe me 
to buy my site, right? And, you know, because if they don't, I'll stick the social media lines on them, right? It's, I, you know, so to a certain extent, I, I, I can see even the legal team like going, you know what, we're going to catch a lot of heat for this, but we have to set the precedent yeah. that you can't do this. And then we can go back to the person and go, all right, now we'll buy your site. Really good point, though. And I completely get what you're saying, but a really good point out of this whole thing is sometimes you need to launch a content platform as a defense mechanism. Because if Ikea has amazing subscribers that, I mean, let's say Ikea, Ikea hackers could be an Ikea site. They could have be, be, been creating hey, there's different ways yeah. to look at Ikea and whatever, but instead somebody else does it. But if, if you have 10, 20 other companies going out, let's just take Ikea off of it. Let's talk about Microsoft or whatever. And there's a ton, ton of sites that talk about Microsoft products and services in different ways. And a lot of them do a lot better job than Microsoft does. Sure. Well, absolutely. It wouldn't it wouldn't it behoove Microsoft to say, you know what, we should probably be creating subscribers around these audience areas because it makes sense for our business to do that instead of letting everyone else have that ground. So I'm just that would be my couldn't take. couldn't agree with you more. I think that's exactly right. So, but most brands so. don't see that. The most brands would not see that and say, look, we really should be creating uh, the this fan base and being the informational provider for our core niche content area, whatever the case is. Instead, what most brands are doing is they're letting that get taken up by other people. Oh, a publisher can do yeah. that. A fan can do that. That's not our area. We're not publishers. But actually, no, you are a publisher. You just yeah. are not taking it seriously. So yeah, there you go. Yeah, there you go. All right. Enough of that one. Let's enough, uh, of, that. Uh, enough of that. Um, we're moving on to the next story. So this one, a really fascinating story that comes from Slate, actually, uh, this week. Um, lots of big topic here. Um, this one from Jordan Weissman, who's their senior business and economics correspondent. And the, the, the title of the article is Online Advertising uh, for Large Brands, Online Ads May Be Worthless. Um, and basically, we have no idea if ads actually work. <laughs> so um, interesting headline. Uh, and basically, he goes through an argument uh, going through a couple of big studies that were done, uh, namely this study that was done a few months ago uh, with eBay, where they started to look and they basically came to the conclusion that for large, well-known brands, search ads are probably worthless. Um, and that was that those findings were then released as a paper, but from the National Bureau of Economic Research, uh, of all places, um, and then got a bunch of coverage uh, on that report. And then he goes through another research report that came out of actually a, a Google and Microsoft paper that talks about the near impossibility of measuring the returns on advertising and where they looked at 25 different experiments using digital ad campaigns. And basically came to the, the the conclusion that consumer behavior is so unpredictable that it's really really hard to arrive at any sort of conclusion about whether digital ads work. What I mean, what did you think about this this article? Well, I think the first thing is I'm very skeptical because their definition of online advertising seems to revolve around Google Ads and specifically brand names in Google Ads. I mean, yeah. didn't you read that? So first I of did. all, I did. First of all, my whole take is. They because there's, there's they do the uh, uh, the A B testing or they're talking about that in the article was oh okay well if somebody's looking for name brand banana slicer or whatever the case is, is <laughs> yeah do I do I put do do I take my name out of it or put my name into it and does it really matter well I, I guess the, what their point is 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 if I'm Hamilton Beach. And somebody's searching for Hamilton Beach. Do I have to buy the keyword Hamilton Beach <laughs> Banana Slicer? Well, I'm buying, I'm buying BananaSlicerHacker.com. There you I'm go. Gonna I'm going to put ads new, on it. <laughs> right now, yeah. Just you start the clickhole version of <laughs> BananaSlicerHacker.com. There you yeah. go. But but I, I guess the point is is that do so do we really have to buy ads against our own brands when that's what people are searching for? Are they going to find it anyways? And yeah. I guess what they're saying is. They probably are going to find it anyways, but test it. So the testing was done and found that really there didn't seem to be a lot of difference. But then when you got to just banana slicer, you know, the jury is out. Yes, it does make a little bit of difference. Of course it does, because if they're just searching for banana slicer, there's no brand affinity. They just want to they want to look at all the banana slicers out there. Right. Well, and that's the and that's the what they call the uh, endogeneity 
which is what economists call fancy it. Fancy word. Yeah. yeah, very fancy word for basically, you know, I was going to buy it anyway, right? I'm looking, for, I'm looking basically where to buy a banana slicer. And so am I clicking on the ad because I'm just I'm, – I'm fascinated by it or am I clicking on the ad because I need one and I'm th- th- this looks easy to get. So well, here's, I'm going to go buy yeah, it. Yeah, but here's my big problem. If you are focusing your advertising or your – let's say your content – marketing program around getting those people that are right before they're ready to buy and try to put advertising around it and shift the conversation. I think you're too late. I really, I I think that what we want to do is we want to have them, uh, you know, create that relationship before they get to the sales purchase side so that we don't have to just be based on price only because we're going to lose that battle every time. That's right. It's a race to the bottom, right? It's, it's funny because that's, you know, I was having a conversation with our, good friend and family of the show, uh, Michael Weiss, who's now the VP of marketing at Guitar Center, um, and where he's talking about this ongoing search ad battle that they're in with uh, their competitors. And he said the challenge is, he said that everybody's battling, the, the real you know hot battle, as it were, is at that last mile, right? When people are searching for a branded uh, product, and they're ready to buy it, and it's just where are they going to buy it, and for what price? And so, you know, they you know they they get into this situation where they're all trying to be the number one Google ad with the lowest price, and like you're saying, it's just a race to the bottom. And so he's he's trying to figure out ways that they can sort of inch their way up the funnel so that search ads become about content and and long before the purchase decision is ever made. That's interesting because I've done a lot of work in the distributor area and heating, heating and air conditioning, really sexy industry of yeah. heating, 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 ventilating and air conditioning. But what's interesting is there was always this question about why Carrier and why Lennox would spend so much money targeting consumers because ultimately the it was the contractors that made the recommendations. Right. Well, what they found was if they could create enough um, visibility and be helpful enough with you know, let's say just certain content or certain information from Carrier or Lennox, whatever, that they would go to the contractor and say, I want a Carrier or I want a Lennox instead of saying, what do you recommend? Yeah. Because if you go, if you just say, what do you recommend? They're going to recommend what's going to make them the most money. Sure. Versus uh, if you say Carrier, they'll say, okay, here's our Carrier lines. So that's yep. it's almost that kind of discussion where we want to well, that's, I mean, have the relationship with those people before they get to that point. And and just to and just to put a capper on that, as it were, I just finished in New York last week with a great bunch of marketers at Pernod Ricard, who you know they have brand managers managing Absolute Vodka and the Glenlivet and uh, Kahlua and Avion Tequila and. By the way, I got some free samples, um, which was very nice. I'm sure that was um, a really good meeting. It was a really good meeting. Um, but the but the interesting there they, is is exactly the same challenge. They are they're trying to become the recommended. You know, when you go to the bar and the bartender and say, "What do you got in the way of scotch?" They want to be that bartender's first choice, right? Not you know, and and so the challenge with them is how do they actually market not to consumers which they do of course but how do they actually get to the bartenders so that they're actually recommending them or to the consumers so that the consumers are going in asking for the brand and that's yeah. the real that's the real challenge Fascinating. Two, yeah mo- yeah multiple strategies right you're not going to do that with one program that's going to be multiple just like we talk about hey if you want to make an impact on an influencer if there's one key influencer or group of influencers that's a whole separate content marketing program to that group of people and then that's why it gets hard, right? Because one advertising program is not going to do it. We've got, you know, there's. I mean, that's such a great takeaway. That is such a great takeaway. I'm, 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 I'm actually, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not erasing something this week. <laughs> I'm actually writing something down, <laughs> um, which is that's such a wonderful takeaway that this that because it, it goes across so many different industry verticals. This idea of when you're trying to make a business case for content marketing, the idea of the really working to to a brand influence where your consumer in any in any business where your product is recommended by someone so bartenders or in what you were talking about you know home cooling systems or in uh you know in in michael's case the the guitars where you're turning to experts that are going to recommend something to you when you go in asking for a brand 
that changes the dynamic. So if you can work a content marketing program where your customers are actually asking for the brand, that is that's sort of an interesting goal that is completely measurable, by the way. And well, when we talked with um, Julie Fleischer from Kraft, that's what she she was talking about that whole thing with Oscar Mayer Bacon. That's that whole program that Bacon. Uh, the, what's the bacon app that smells? Oh, right. yeah, that, right. that yeah. kicks out yeah. the smell and the sound of bacon, which is fantastic, by the way. Yeah, I wanted to get one, but they already gave them up. <laughs> uh, but but that the whole thing, the whole reason for doing that is, it's not just bacon. They need people to go to the store. There's there are ten types of bacon down there. They need people to pick Oscar Mayer bacon that has to have a meaning to it. Right, and they are working on their content programs to create that relationship, so people go in looking for Oscar Mayer bacon. Like, if, just think if you were looking at a list of recipes and you're writing down, you can't just put bacon. You have to put Oscar Mayer bacon, or like, what, what's the new hot champagne? Ace of Spades or something? Champagne? I I'm, wouldn't I'm, know. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, I hear him talking about it on the radio. There's a Cavassier and all yeah. these different types of. You need to. It needs to have a meaning all into itself, and I think that's a. I think that's what we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. I have to call out one quote from this uh, from this article, which I I put in bold because it just made me giggle um, when they were talking about that study with uh, the co-study paper with Google uh, and Microsoft. The quote from the article goes: uh, "The median." St- so they came back with this this standard error uh, of of looking at the measurement and return on these this digital advertising, and it said the median standard error was a massive fifty one percent. In other words, even if the analysis suggested an ad buy delivered a 50% return, it was possible that the company actually lost money. What I loved about that was the 50% and 50%. It was just like the John Wanamaker quote of, I know half my my ads are working. I just don't know which half is still true today, which is just (laughs) awesome. I just love that. Anyway. Which goes to the difficulty of measurement. And And we're still at that. With all this technology, we're still at this point. Absolutely. All right. Well, moving on to the next story here, reaching millennials with content marketing. Uh, this comes from a, you know, quite frankly, a content marketing piece uh, on Yahoo, uh, which is a uh, so duly noted that this is a content marketing study that we're going to be talking about here. Um, it apparently, quote unquote, delves deep into the understanding of millennial behavior, uh, and it's done by Yahoo and Tumblr in partnership with uh, Razorfish and Digitas, which is an interesting combination. Um, And they released this study called Content Marketing Best Practices Among Millennials, which is this guide to understanding the first generation of digital natives and the content marketing strategies that resonate with them. So um, what did you take out of this? Did you read the study? Did you actually Um, get a a hold of it? I did not go into. Did you go into the study? Because if I you did. did, then okay. Then why don't you talk to it and I'll and I'll respond. I've got a quick take, but go ahead. Yeah, I, it was fascinating, actually. I mean, I mean, it was fascinating in its sort of yeah, okay, duh, right? I mean, you know, so I mean, I guess the the and they, there was an infographic in the article that talks a lot about this, where they sort of sum up many of the the charts that are that are in there. And I guess what I took away from this was sort of the. They asked really millennials what they expected out of content, and then they sort of grouped them together into these, you know, uh, these these sort of categories. And they called the categories desire to immerse in content, where seventy two percent, basically, you know, seven out of ten, tend to find themselves lost in a vortex of entertainment, as they said. The desire to satisfy fandom, where the millennials apparently want to see it all when it comes to celebrity content, news and info, and interviews and stuff, desire to be in the know, where again, seven out of 10 want to be informed on very specific topics, and the desire for resources to succeed, where uh, about half of them are looking for online resources that will help them transition to becoming uh, better or more responsible adults. And, And I mean, what I came away with is, yeah, okay, I'm not really sure how this is different from anybody else. In short, they want the content to be good, entertaining, thought-provoking and educational it's like is there is there did we need a study to tell us that basically when we're trying to reach millennials we should be creating good content entertaining content thought-provoking content and educational content thank you (laughs) i guess did you i mean did you take something else away yeah i took away that this is a lead generation (laughs) for their their advertising program is pretty pretty much what it is no i mean the the one thing that i the one thing I this is outside of anything else we're talking about is how much content 
millennials are engaging in. Well, that's true. More more than what we would ever expect. And I think what's interesting is, is as we get more devices, we, we don't have more time in the day, but we are seeing that younger uh, younger kids are engaging in more and more and more and more content. And it seems like every study I see, that's the ca- that's the case. It's right. unbelievable. And multiple, you know, of course, the multitasking, which I don't get because I'm not a good multitasker. I have to do one thing at a time. But apparently there are there are new human beings out there that can do multiple things at one time. Uh, it's impressive it, sometimes to see what they do. I mean, I, I've had a conversation with my niece while she's texting someone, literally looking me in the eye and having a conversation with me, but she's texting someone in the other hand. Is she all there though? I mean, does she? Is she with you? I mean, <laughs> well, not all that's there, a whole all there. That's but, a whole. That's a whole different story. But like, is my she friend. really paying attention? Or does she just like faking it enough that you can't tell the difference? Uh, yeah. See, well, that may be too. I mean, that may say yeah. more about me than it says about her. Actually, is, is what your point is. But yeah, no, it's 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 it, it is it is amazing the amount of content um, that you know, and quite frankly, just the way that the the sort of content absorption muscles, if that's the right way to even phrase it are just, you know, so much more developed with this, uh, you know, with this generation than, than they are with us, quite frankly. Yeah, I guess you can have numbers say just about anything in a study. And that's, I think that's what we're seeing here. And I don't know, I, I guess I'd have to see, I have to go in and see the survey and see how it was actually done and how the questions were worded because, you know, does that, right. do you want content that's going to satisfy <laughs> your needs? Uh, yes. Yeah, right. Yes, I would. I would like content were... that would satisfy. Do then you like you, right. content that's entertaining and informative? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That's good to... too. Check the box on that one. And yeah. So. Yeah. Well, they didn't <laughs> ask you quite like that, but it is. It's almost like that. Yeah, so yeah, anyways. you'll 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 see it anyway. All right. Moving You're gonna. On. By the way, you'll get a call. You're gonna get a call for you know advertising on Yahoo pretty soon because you filled out the form, right? Did you? I Was did. It a, yeah, so there you yeah, go. Yeah, let yeah. me know what the let me know what the sales price is. I will. Is that. I would be curious. <laughs> All right, moving on. Um, this is a fun story. This is not that the rest of them haven't been entirely enjoyable, but this is a really fun story. Launching a fake news site. Uh, so last week, Onion, The Onion, which we all know and love, and great, wonderful, wonderful website, uh, launched. And this, I mean, come on, this is the best name for a site. I I so wish I had thought this up, but didn't. Um, the site's called Clickhole, which just so great. Um, a site that basically satirizes a lot of the successful viral news sites like BuzzFeed and Upworthy. Um, that doesn't, you know, basically gives the onion treatment to these new uh, sites with this site Clickhole. It's just a, if you haven't seen it yet, it's just a wonderful, wonderful way to spend a few minutes and and go laugh. Um, anyway, this article, which uh, appears in Folio, was an interview. Uh, with uh, uh, the uh, Mike McAvoy, the president at Onion Incorporated, about how they actually launched it. And it's just a fascinating, I thought, peer into, one, what I think is just it, it, so, so something that's really missing from brands today. The, the thing that struck me about this article, and I would love to get your take, Joe, is, is how fast they launched this. They, As he said, they had the concept in the fall. They found a sponsor for it, which I know you're going to talk about. And they literally, they had the, 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 the design done in March and April, had the initial content run, hired the editors, and had the site launched in June. I mean, we're talking about a four-month launch window here. And when I hear about brands taking a year to launch a website, this, just, this is it, right? This is what it should be. This is how standing up an owned platform should be. And, it's, and we never see this on the brand side, especially enterprise brands. Right. What, exactly what's the quickest right. you've seen to execute? Maybe a year. Yeah, it takes a long time. I mean, you know, I've seen I've seen sites get up quickly, but not that look as beautiful and as have as much content at launch as these guys did. I mean, it's just you know, it's just really well done. I think that well, we can learn a lot from that one. But the one thing that I was interested in because so they they said okay, we're going to do click hole. You talked about the sponsorship. They went and found Jack Links as the key sponsor. And I actually got pretty excited when I saw this because I thought initially that this was a Jack Links content marketing initiative that, you know, almost thought it was a partnership, right? Or a brandscaping, as Andrew Davis would call it. Right. They were working together. Jack Links was, okay, that makes sense. Here's the kind of content we want to do. ClickHole was, was executing that. Thought that was fantastic. Uh, but it looks like that's not the case. They launched it. 
behind, you know, as part of National Beef Jerky Day, which is yeah. amazing that there's a National Beef Jerky Day. I know there's everything, but there you go. But then, but then that's not the case because you and I were on it today. You saw an ad. I saw an ad for Kia on there. So it looks like just a very traditional model. That's but, right. Yeah, I mean, so I was a little bit deflated. I'm like, oh wow, they you know, because you could launch that all day long. Where if you're a brand, you could go out to a publisher because they're more open than ever today. They say, yeah, we can work this publishing model and we can do it in partnership with you and with our content labs group or whatever the case is. And now there's an opportunity for that more than ever because of the fact that you said the timetable. Because a lot of the times we're not structured on the brand side, the enterprise side, to do this. Yeah, to get the content team, but publishers are especially a, you know new media publisher like a Onion. They can they can do this all day long. Exactly. Set up the right. stringers, get them going. You know, get the ad sales team around it and run with it. And I think that four to four to six months seems about right for that kind of a launch. So I don't know. I love the it's, idea though. It's a great site. Oh, I don't it's know. a wonderful. I'm site. sure it'll be madly successful. Yeah. Um, well, they say, and they are talking about you know other ways that they're going to monetize this thing and that they're exploring it. And so, look, if there's any brands out there, I mean, this is this is the kind of thing we're talking about, right? Where you know, if it's not if it's not done on the onion, it can be done by you, you know. And and this is you know the idea of buying your way into this with some you know with a team and or with you know a set of content that 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 makes sense for your brand is is you know we talked about it at the top of the show, right? When we talk about the LinkedIn influencers you know the the idea of a brand buying something like a forbes and just being letting that be the content brand for the business is is certainly i think a very viable idea well and i think a lot of brands think that oh we want to do a content brand online and we want to launch this thing and they feel oh we've got to staff up and we got to do the strategy we got to do all this stuff and it's going to you know staffing up around this is where it's going to you know, finding the right talent on both the audience side, the content side, the analytics side, it's not easy. That's where it takes a lot of the time. But I don't think a lot of brands know that you could go to a publisher in your industry and say, "Here, here's an idea we want to run with. Can you execute it for us?" Right. And you would That's still exactly own. Right. You would still own the asset. Like the publisher. That, I mean, there's lots of different models, but in in a lot of cases, it's con- content contract for hire. Uh, that the publisher is doing and they will do this on your behalf and you just pay for the fees just like an outsourcing fee and I don't, a lot of brands don't know that they can go to publishers right now and do that American Express Open Network I mean that exactly. is I mean that is the that is the model I mean a lot of people don't know that that's completely outsourced well and Homemade Simple got started with that way they went out to an agency and the agency started that I think beinggirl.com the same way yeah. So on a lot of, and then they, then as they learn the business, they understand how to do it. They understand where they have, you know, the inside talent to produce this thing. They bring some of that inside, still leveraging the outside publisher agency. So there's a lot of different models for it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of a lot of different models, we have a lovely model as well. <laughs> we have a lovely, lovely sponsor to talk about. Oh, I love and and we've had this sponsor for a while now, and I'm I'm They're sort so of love. Great. They're I'm, so I'm, great. Yeah, I'm loving the idea that that Emma has come to the table. If you're not familiar with Emma, email marketing platform, uh, they do a fantastic job uh, putting together email pro- marketing programs. They've got a bunch of templates that are mobilely responsive, social integration tools, and of course, the all famous now that we've made famous. I believe. I believe the con- so too. The concierge services. <laughs> the concierge services is what is at. Um, and so they are, you know, they, they did the 18 tips thing that we were promoting for, for about a month or so. And now we're promoting uh, this great new webinar entitled the eight second challenge. And, and I didn't know this, that the average uh, time frame that anyone can have attention to anything is eight seconds. That's probably true in my, in our oh, case. I'm sorry. Were you talking about something? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they have this webinar called the eight second challenge email marketing for the shrinking attention span. Fantastic. It's about 45 minutes long. When you get a chance, please check it out. Uh, you can download it at bitly.com slash PNR dash Emma and the number eight. So that's PNR dash Emma eight. And that's all lower cases, the eight second challenge email marketing for the shrinking attention span. And if you get a chance, please give a shout out to, uh, to Emma at myemma.com. And we certainly appreciate them being great supporters of this old marketing. We certainly do. We certainly do. All right, then. Well, now it's the time of the show where we go on our rants and raves a little bit, uh, where Joe and I go off on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave about something that's really bugging us or something we'd like to show a little love to. 
Um, since I have uh, this old marketing this week, I'm going to go first. Um, and I have a very short rant uh, this uh, this week. Um, I guess maybe you could even call it a rave a little bit because I'm just glad somebody actually did this. But it, I'm going to position it as a rant. Um, it comes from an article on CMO.com, but the actual study comes from Accenture. Um, and the article is covering this idea of uh, this Basically, Accenture did this study where they went out and interviewed 580 CMOs and CEOs uh, across the business landscape, across all verticals. So CPG companies, services companies, uh, technology companies, business to business, business to consumer. Um, so all different kinds of companies. And basically what they found was 1%, one, so 99% of CEOs don't believe that CMOs are capable of leading the digital transformation within their organization. And that's just a staggering number to me that, you know, and, 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 and a lot of this is aligns with what we have seen, quite frankly, at CMI. It's something that emerged front and center in our executive forum. It's something that we see day to day where from a content marketing perspective and the transformation that's happening in the functional parts of marketing, where content marketing is becoming more prevalent, it's just really hard. Um, and this, the transformation, not only to digital, but also just to all of the different things, the channel management, the content, uh, to measurement is, seems to just be either vexing CMOs or they're not paying attention to it, or they don't know how I'm not really sure that, you know, in the alignment with the CIO, I guess what's really bugging me is that we're 14 years into this digital thing now, and this just has to get figured out. And for CEOs to have so little confidence in this, I don't know what is going on with CMOs that they're that the the inability to at least get more confidence in their uh, in the C-suite. I, I'm just not sure why that's happening. And it's do you, and it's, do you agree with this number? Do you agree? Well, I'm going to take them at their word. I mean, I'm going to. So I've read this study. I have not read it in depth, but I've read it to the extent that that number comes popping out. So I'm going to take them at their word. Um, I, I don't care if it's two or five or 10, right? Percent. Yeah. Ultimately. I mean, it's low basically. Um, I've seen other studies that say, uh, it, uh, the one study that came out last year, I think it was that said, uh, that, uh, it was, I think it was in the twenties or the te high teens where see the, the CEOs and their confidence in the CMO's ability to, uh, transition into cu uh, customer experience management, which was the specific. So there's a confidence gap for sure. There's no doubt about that between the CEO and the CMO in the highest leadership of most organizations. And I'm just, I, I guess, I, I just want to know what what is it that we need to do in order to either convince the CMO that they need to get good at this and fast, or what is it that the CEOs need to be made convinced of to say that it's possible that we actually can do this because I'm not going to put it all on the CMOs. I think in many cases, this is the CEO going, I got my head in the sand and I, my CMO guy is trying to do all this stuff and I don't know what's going on. I have no confidence in it. Well, I think and, the one thing to take, and we hear this all the time where let's just take marketing automation, for example, yeah. where, where somebody in the marketing side says, okay, now it's time. Uh, we need to get a marketing automation solution which is the the worst thing that you could do before saying, what's our problem? Right. And all the things that we're trying to do and then getting uh, the IT personnel or you know whoever understands technology in your organization into the table and then having them have that conversation. Where, which what we're seeing is, is a lot of marketers will go out and purchase marketing automation without having that internal, without the IT people even being involved. That's right. Which is saying, oh, here's what we're going to do. Figure out to make sure that there's no viruses or problems that we're going to have and make sure we can host it here and whatever. And they're very tactical, but no strategic conversation. And I think that's where it falls down. I don't think CMOs need to know everything about technology. I think they need to bring in the right people in the organization that know what they're doing. Agreed. So I think that's the bigger issue. I mean, it helps what a CMO does know, but I think just understanding that it's not a technology first thing. It's like, hey, we have an issue, and can technology help us with that? Yeah. Maybe. Well, and and we've well, and we've talked about this before. I mean, this was the thrust of the the keynote that I gave at our at our first virtual conference, which we had in February. I mean, which was this idea that so many businesses these days with CMO and CIO alignment 
basically say, okay, well, as long as the CMO understands the CIO's agenda and as long as the CIO understands the CMO's agenda, then it's all good. And so they basically fix that, quote unquote, by hiring people to understand the acronyms, right? So now we have technical people on the marketing team and we have marketing relationship people on the on, on the CIO's team. And now it's just worse. It just It just makes things worse. And so this idea of collaboration, uh, just to your point, you know, the idea that that the CMO and the CIO have to work together on some uh, on a collaborative strategy, not separate strategies where they make their their you know here's my strategy now understand it. You know, it's it's they have to come together and do something collaborative because otherwise, yeah, they're they're just going to be going down different you know different paths. Yeah, I don't I don't see that happening right now. I, mean, I don't that's, either. That's, I don't either. That's yeah. the key. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, my um uh I guess this would be a rant and I really want to get your take on it. Uh and this is a this is an older article that was just updated and actually CMI just did a an article on this as well and sort of talking about this, but uh Chad, Chad Pollitt, uh VP of Marketing at, at Digital Irrelevance, he wrote an article here on um HuffPo. And of course, the title, and everybody sends it to me because it's one of those titles. <laughs> Content right. marketing is 88% less effective than public relations. <laughs> and of course, I got to be like, oh, great. Now I got to go into this and check and see what's going on and whatever. So basically, the highlights are they did this in-lab, multi-month study to 900 consumers and different types of content. And basically, what they found is expert content from third-party credible sources performs better than any other content across the buyer's journey. Even though owned media, what they call branded content in this, or owned media, and then user-generated content also perform. Everything performed up. I mean, everything was influenced in some way, but the most influential was this earned content from third-party resources. And I wanted to get your take out, and I have a take, but I guess my, I guess I'll tell you my take is... Doesn't it? <laughs> you can't do these in you can't do this in silos. No, you, you, you cannot say that. Oh, okay. Well, then I'm because what this title tells people is that. Oh, no. Okay, now I got to go to public relations because content marketing doesn't work. That's where I get so frustrated, and I look at it this way. I'm like, hey, nothing wrong with PR. We should still be doing PR. Earned media is really important, but earned media and owned media are connected, or they should be. And I'm thinking about it this way because this is the way that Content Marketing Institute has always gone to market with our earned media strategy. We start with an owned media principle idea. And if we create compelling content that's interesting enough that will be shared, we get coverage. We get earned media coverage and that helps us. And if they get that, if they, if they're influenced by that journalist or third party resource, that's great. But how did that happen? That happened because we're, we're talking about solutions. We're talking about interesting information on a consistent basis. So I, you can't separate the two. That earned media that we got could essentially be coming from our content marketing efforts. So I'll say that, and then I got one more thing that I want to get your take. And we talked about this before. In some cases, our earned media strategy, or let's say that we're targeting an influencer, and let's say that influencer is a journalist that works at a particular media property that's important to us. It's number one on the influencer list. We could create a content marketing program just for that one influencer, right? Right. To, to create a relationship with that person and give them the kind of information so they'll ultimately talk about us. Some people might say that's just public relations, but I, don't, I believe it's deeper than that. If we actually look at our audience of one, of one person and we have an ongoing content marketing program to that person and we have an outcome that is that outcome we want them to actually talk about us and that's the behavior we're looking for. It's hard to separate these two, and that's why I just I, my rant is is not against the study, which could be right, but it's it's not one against the other. So, agreed. I you know this is the this is the this is the classic. You know, does does content marketing perform better than advertising, or does content marketing yeah. perform better than than SEO, or does content marketing perform better than a billboard? I mean, how ridiculous would it be to see a study to say, hey, we compared billboard advertising. And content marketing. And did you know that more people in cars, 95% people in cars see billboard advertising and 3% of people in cars see content marketing. How do we know this? Well, we ask them. How, many, how much content marketing do you see in your car? I don't know what the hell you're talking about. I'll take you that as a no. 
You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, this is this is the problem with asking that question in that way and looking at it. You can't. They're inextricably linked to each other. And even if you don't want them to be, they are inextricably linked to each other. So this is the kind of thing where I guess I, 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 I have a challenge with the question even being asked before I look at it and go, you know, I sure I'm, I'm sure that the study is fine, but it's exactly it. I, you know, as we've said, you know, many, 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 many times, content marketing is infused into the rest of your marketing strategy. You know, PR is great. Love PR. PR is awesome. Uh, you know, SEO, advertising, email, all of the different things that we do from a marketing and communication strategy are made better with a content marketing approach infused into it. And that's just the way it is. So looking at it as separate, I don't know what I don't even know what the aim of that that study would be. What's the point? Well, that, well that this we is one that we, that we shouldn't do content marketing and and, and instead I, go back to PR. I mean, I don't PR? Well, that's, How's that working out for you? That, well, that's the issue, and that's why I don't know what what the point of this is. Besides, I think it's another lead generator, uh, most likely, which is a whole other episode. But the it, the one point is okay. Well, what do you what does Empowered who helped do the study recommend? So this is their own content marketing initiative, which is right. a whole other thing. Yeah. Uh, they recommend, number one, build trust, cut through the noise, begin with trusted content from credible third-party experts to establish a foundation of, of trust with the consumer. Okay, how do we build that trusted – how do we build that relationship with credible third-party experts? <laughs> you create it and then you send it through a wire service, I guess. What, what do you do? <laughs> yeah, do you just blast them all the time? You know what you do? You build an ongoing relationship, probably uh, in a lot yeah, of cases, yeah, yeah, through yeah, content, yeah. through events, through calls, through the things we do to build relationships. We're not just going to what most – and I got 10 of these this morning about, hey, you got to – Joe, you got to see the latest pitch on this, on that, and the other. Right. I'm like, oh, that's really you know delete, spam, whatever. Right, right, right. So anyways – well, <laughs> <laughs> let's go to this old marketing. <laughs> That's, let's, let's do, do it. it. Yeah. Okay. Well, in celebration of me being in the middle of Holland, um, which, by the way, I have to tell you, uh, Zwolle, where I am, uh, for any of our international uh, listeners, well, for the Americans, too, um, it, it's just absolutely stunningly beautiful little city here. I mean, it's a tiny little city, but it's just beautiful. I have to say I've had the best time here um, and just really lovely. Um, anyway, so uh, this old marketing is a, is a Dutch company, actually, this, uh, in sort of celebration of me being here. Um, and it's Albert Heijn uh, Supermarket. Um, and it's been in business since 1887 here in the Netherlands. Um, it is now one of the uh, larger, uh, I think the third largest uh, grocery stores chain here in the country. Um, and it's a family-owned and operated uh, uh, supermarket. Um, they've got stores which are completely full service markets and they have a magazine. Um, and their magazine, which they both, interestingly enough, um, which I heard today, they actually, you pay for it if you want to receive it at home, um, which they do by subscription. And then, of course, if you go to the store, it's free. It's all filled with recipes and articles about food and locally grown and the importance of, of all of this kind of stuff. It was started in 1954. So the magazine has been around since uh, 1954. It's called Allerhand, um, and it's uh, it's got a circulation now of more than two million people across the country. Really focusing in on high quality articles about food, the preparation, recipes, how to do stuff, um, and not at all on you know sort of couponing and stuff like this. And it's it was really top of mind for me having worked with a couple of grocery store chains that are <laughs> you know both in the states uh, and in another country that are trying to do exactly this and really having a tough time convincing their CEOs that doing this is really good and here's a company that's been doing it since 1954 so just a great example of this old marketing I love that content so good you'd want to pay for it yeah and, and they, they actually do. do yeah yeah exactly good absolutely stuff. All right. Well, we are long on time. Where are you uh, this week? Are you home this week? I'm home. Yeah. I mean, this is uh, I'm on my summer break. I mean, That's still fantastic. working, of course. But we're you know we're the next two months leading up to 
uh, content marketing world and uh, love seeing the, the red. You know what? I have to say this. This is just interesting to see the change. It's our fourth year doing content marketing world. And the biggest thing that we've seen this year is how many companies, big companies are sending groups of people this year. That's fantastic. So wonderful to see that because they're bringing, you've got the VPs of marketing that are bringing their content teams and in some case bringing their technical teams. And I, we just talked about the, having that conversation. Yeah. Everybody can get on the same page and learn together. It makes a big difference. So, you know, but the next two months I'm, you know, I'm at home, not going anywhere until after content marketing, uh, world and and just enjoying some time in cleveland ohio and and you're you're in holland until what thursday i'm I'm in holland until thursday Uh, tomorrow i head off to uh uh the beach the the beach here in holland for a beach party and content mark yes they they call it the night of content marketing um done by our good friends of the show uh uh bob ort and Coors Hospice, um, who are uh, some thought leaders here in, in Holland. On, oh, yeah, uh, send them yeah. my best. I will two, absolutely. Two wonderful, wonderful uh, guys. Wonderful gentlemen really pushing the industry along. Yeah, so absolutely. Really so, yeah, so they're they're hosting me, and I'm the keynote for uh, for their big event. And then I'll get to hang out on the beach tomorrow night. I'm kind of excited about that. And then awesome. home on Thursday. Yeah, absolutely. Well, safe travels. Well, Thank you very uh, much. And we'll talk to you. Yeah, we'll talk to you next week. Absolutely. That is it for Joe Polizzi. This is Robert Rose signing off. And tweet us up on hashtag this whole marketing, would you? Uh, Just like Rich Rosa, at Rich Rosa, uh, who tweeted us up. We'll include his link that he actually suggested for us that we didn't have time to cover today in the show notes. But it's all about why Yahoo wants you to linger on the ads and some of the trouble that Marissa Meyer got in when she (laughs) did a little bit of uh, a speech um, at the uh, at the at the con festival this week. Anyway, if you like this, this was episode number thirty two. We hope you'll consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher dot com. All those links, including from at Rich Rose on Twitter, are available at thisoldmarketing dot com. Remember, everybody, it's your story to tell. Tell it well. We'll see you next week on this old marketing. 